Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Hello and welcome to The Best in the World with Richard Power. Each week I speak to an Olympic champion, a world champion, a world record holder or a world number one to find out what they do differently to the rest of us to be the very best in their sport. This week I spoke to Joe Jacoby. He won a gold medal in canoe slalom in the 1992 Summer Olympics in the C2 event. This is a fantastic chat. You'll see that it's probably one of the longest conversations I've had on this podcast. You know, these are very busy people. They've got very busy schedules, whether they're still competing or not. And so I normally only ask for 30 minutes of one of these champions' time. And with Joe, we went on for an hour. And to be honest, we could have spoke longer. And perhaps we will do a part two, as suggested with Joe. Or even if we do a best in the world conference. What do you think of that idea? Joe brings up that in the podcast i'd love to get your thoughts on that if you've got some kind of idea of could this work send send me a tweet at richard underscore par i'd love to hear from you i'm not going to talk too much about the interview because it, it is a long one so i want to get straight into it with joe just before we do that i want to tell you that today's show is sponsored by audible audible is one of the leading supplies of audiobooks in the world i'm currently listening to mastery by robert green so it is a product that I personally use. If you want to try out their service for 30 days for free, it's really easy. All you've got to do is go to audibletrial.com forward slash best. And as part of that trial, you get one free audiobook to download. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash best. All right, let's get to it. Let's get to my interview with Joe Jacoby. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Welcome to the best in the world with Richard Parr, 1992 canoe slalom gold medalist. Absolutely delighted to have you on the program. Now that's 25 years ago. You've had an amazing life and career so far. Let's get people up to date with what are you up to right now, Joe? 
Yeah, thanks. I'm so thrilled to be here with you, Richard, and, and love what you're doing. I'm just a fan of the show, so I keep doing what you're doing. It's great. For me, uh, yes, I am. Um, I will always think of myself as, uh, on some level, as a whitewater canoe slalom athlete. I got into this sport when I was eight years old. By age 10, I knew like this was the sport I wanted to do. The sport has been very good to me as an athlete, um, as a broadcaster, as a coach. And even at one point for five years, I was the chief executive officer of the national governing body for canoeing in the United States under the umbrella of the U.S. Olympic Committee. And now today, um, I am a performance coach and executive trainers. I am taking the lessons that I've learned in elite sport and out on the river and helping people uh, to perform better and navigate the river currents of life and business to do their very best. Who are the people you're working with, Joe? Yeah, so um, they tend to come in uh, in different shapes and forms, but uh, they tend. To, I tend to have uh, entrepreneurs and people that have a lot of entrepreneurial interest. Um, having said that, I do get to work with uh, with people at senior leadership teams in large companies, you know, such as General Electric or Ernst & Young. One of the things that I'll tell you, Richard, when I am at my absolute happiest doing what I, what I do, and I, I love talking about the, the topic of performance, but for me, the river and river currents and moving water through rapids are such a great metaphor for life. And you know, I have, I'm now starting my fifth decade of whitewater canoeing. And this is not just a sport you do as an athlete, but it's a sport you just do as a person for your entire life. It's a ton of fun to do. But the way that river flows is just a great metaphor for living a good life. Um, you know, there's, I believe in this, this bigger force that you can uh, align yourself with, you know, creating the mindsets to align yourself with, um, the energy and the momentum of something that's bigger and stronger uh, than you are, which is what happens when you paddle a canoe through rapids, uh, navigating obstacles on rivers and how you go about that. Uh, if you're a sports fan, you might know in the game of basketball, if things aren't working out well, the coach can call timeout and regroup. And that's nice in the sport of basketball, but in canoeing, you don't get that luxury of calling timeout. The river doesn't stop. The currents keep going. So when you make mistakes, you've got to be really good at transferring from plan A to plan B to plan C to plan D as many times as it takes. And you have to be able to shift in real time. And I think helping people to course correct and fix mistakes that's what I always tell people was the difference in winning a gold medal at the Olympic Games. It wasn't that we paddled better than everyone else on the day of the competition. What I really felt we did, I felt like we corrected mistakes a little bit better, that when you have mis just a line of possible mistakes in front of you, that the real objective is trying to fix those mistakes, really small mistakes, because mistakes only know how to get bigger. And secondly, uh, to get better at even anticipating mistakes before they happen. And um, there, we're living in this world right now where 
people are putting kind of shortcuts and quick fixes and life hacks in front of you. And, and it's like, it's almost trying to pull you into this world that you don't need to fix mistakes. You just need to create a new path. I've never found that to be something that worked for me. I think the better, when I'm making mistakes, I'm actually happy because it's signaling to me, I have something more to learn. I have something to fix that I, I have a, when I have a reason to learn something, it's like, I have a reason to live for something. And that's what the river has taught me. So I simulate all of these concepts and ideals with corporate teams and executive leaders out on the river in rafts and canoes. And we experience these in real time. So it's a ton of fun doing what I do. I just love it. <laughs> I can imagine. I've got so much to pick up from that. I love the metaphor. And uh, as soon as you said it, I was immediately thought, what happens when you hit those big rocks? Now, I, I wanted to, to right. bring it back to you. Of when you were leading up to those first Olympics, was there one big mistake, one big failure that you had? And how did you deal with it? And is it something that you really learned from which you were able to help you tackle those future mistakes uh that's a great question i mean i will tell you that i feel like my path from being a a kid that found his way to the sport of canoeing um i know you've had a lot of rowers on the podcast before mm -hmm. i think it's really important for people to understand almost how unlikely it is compared to say a sport like running, how unlikely it is to get a young person into a canoe, a kayak, or a rowing shell in the United States or in the United Kingdom. It is just, think about how much work and education that it takes just to get one kid onto the water. It takes a lot of work. Whereas in running, it's like you have a pair of shoes and you're in the club. And I say that very respectfully to the sport of runner because I'm, I'm a runner today. I'm a, I'm a marathon runner now. But that comparison is really good for me to know. And so to your question about, you know, mistakes, setbacks, I would say that I remember about uh, in late 1990, so we were uh, less than two years before the Olympic Games, uh, one of the things we do in the sport of whitewater canoeing, in addition to our training, is that we go out and we run rivers for fun. You know, we like to challenge ourselves by running more challenging rapids than the kind of rapids that we race on. You know, it keeps mm -hmm. us sharp. It, it allows us to explore limits of risk. And I remember one day we were running a river that was uh, had a lot of water in it from rainstorms uh, in Tennessee. And I remember we paddled over like a, 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 a small waterfall. And when I landed, I dislocated my shoulder. And Ooh. then after that, Richard, just there was a number of just things that happened that were just all bad luck. So when I flipped over with this dislocated shoulder, um, I pulled the spray deck from the boat. I swam out of the boat and the currents pushed me to the opposite side of the river where the, from where the road was, making the river rescue to get me off the river much more challenging and more complicated. And I remember sitting there as the sun was going down, my shoulder was out of my socket and, um, and I was just trying to get into a, uh, into a mindset of just trying to numb the pain, so to speak. And the setback to answer your question was at the time, you know, in my training, I was paddling a, a two man canoe. I, I, I was in a partnership with another guy 
trying to do the very best we can, trying to do our best at the Olympic Games. And he wasn't with me that day when I dislocated my shoulder. And I really realized that that step back or that mistake was that when I'm out running a river, I'm not just taking risk on behalf of me. I'm taking risk on behalf of the team, you know, and I, it's like I, I had let him down. Like, that's the way I felt um, when that happened. And so that was something pretty important for me to work through. Like, I didn't just snap out of that um, after that injury. Like, I, it's just I really had to be a little bit more thoughtful on what I was doing, that canoeing is this intensely individual pursuit, but I'm in a two-man boat, and so I'm with a team. I've got someone that's counting on me to, to make good choices and not let the team down. And so that was a pretty big uh, lesson for me and, and a setback that I had to work to overcome. And uh, But it was a really valuable lesson, obviously, and of course I learned from it over, over time. And you know, less than two years later, we were standing on the top step of the podium at the Olympic Games. Mm, happy ending there in the end. Now, when you mentioned you were going on those those really fast waters, Joe, it immediately made mm-hmm. me think of one of the interviews I did. And I, I brought this example up a few times on these podcasts with Brian Clay, who won the 2008 decathlon goal. Yes. And yes. my conversation with Brian was... He said he would make his training so grueling that actually when it came to competition, it was a bit of a doddle for him because his training was harder than the actual competition. Now, was that your mindset when you went for those tougher waters because you thought, all right, if I can cope with this water, I'll easily cope with whatever they put in front of me at the games? Or is it just because you were a thrill seeker? Right. So that's it's a very interesting question. So now... I did have similar elements of Brian's uh, mindset into my own training. Now, I didn't carry that mindset when I went out to run a river. Running a river is just, you know, I, I, I tell people that when I went to the Olympic Games, like, I didn't exactly see myself as an Olympian. I saw myself first as a whitewater canoeist. And, you know, and I think about the spirit of adventure, the spirit of risk, the spirit of um, not knowing uh, what's around the bend, that idea of embracing uncertainty. That was a bigger part of my mindset when I went to go paddle a river for fun. Uh, And that was an important thing for me, how I saw myself in the start gate at the Olympic games. It wasn't just being a representative of the United States. I just loved being a whitewater canoe athlete and, and all of these great things that the river taught me now to Brian's point in my training environment, especially where I was raised on the Potomac river in the Washington DC area, I kind of had these Malcolm Gladwell outlier slash fortuitous moments (laughs) in my life that I was just born into this incredible training environment, one of the highest performing training environments in the history of the sport of canoe slalom. Uh, it, it, it's, it, the entire sport community of canoeing is familiar with what happened on the Potomac River in the 1970s and the 1980s. And I grew up as a young paddler in the 1980s as a part of this, uh, the, this amazing training group. And it was a lot more like what Brian was talking about there. Uh, but it wasn't that we were trying, we never had a goal to say, let's make it so grueling that the Olympics will seem easy. 
we just went out and competed like crazy against each other. And they were, we got very comfortable. I do remember going to not the Olympic games, but I remember going to a lot of world cup world championship competitions and we would be talking in around the, after the races were over and talking about how sometimes even races of that caliber didn't meet quite the competitive standard of our practice sessions on the Potomac river. And I don't think that we really thought about how intense that those practices had to, we just went out. It was like a, a code to go out and compete to the best of your ability. No, it's not going to serve anybody any good to hold anything back in practice. And the way we looked at it was, the higher the quality of your practice as a starting point, the more likely you are to raise the level of your, your competitive performance as well. Because I do think some people get a little scared that if they practice too hard, maybe they won't race to that level when it's time to race. And I never found that to be true. I think the, you know, if you can raise the quality of your practice and really embrace what makes a good practice – I think you're more likely to have better performances when you want to make that performance count. Mm. And everything that you're doing now is from a mentoring point of view. Who were your mentors during that, that time, Joe? So there were people that really came along. And, and first, I want to just speak a little bit to the uh, listeners in the United Kingdom of this, of this particular podcast. Richard Fox was is arguably the greatest canoe solemn athlete in the history of our sport he was a men's kayaker raised you know born raised great britain raised for great britain he's now uh he's now living in australia and was the for uh, about the last 15 ish years 20 years been the high performance director of the australian program and his daughter jess whose grandparents still live in the united kingdom is jess fox top women's kayaker in the history of our sport or is happening in our sport today. But Richard was a really big influence on me and just the way he went about uh, very methodically uh, how he broke down the race. And when I, let me even break this up. I just want to remind people, we're talking about a, a wild running whitewater river. We're not talking about a swimming pool or a track that has this very constant uh, platform. I would I would ask your your listeners to imagine uh, being on a putting green and trying to hit trying to sink a three meter putt. But instead of the putting green being stable, imagine that the that the putting green was moving like waves, and you had to put the ball in the hole. You had to navigate this moving putting green. That's what whitewater canoeing is like. And Richard Fox really bought brought this methodical break it down into the tiniest fractional pieces to add some certainty to this world of uncertainty that we were competing in. So Richard was a really big influence on me. Also later, you know, who else became a really big influence on me? I had the chance to speak with him one time, uh, Steve, Stephen Redgrave, the, uh, the rower. I met him uh, before the 1996 Olympics. So I had already won a gold medal by that point, but that was the first time I ever held three Olympic gold medals at the same time. You know, his Olympic gold medals from 84, 88, and 92, he would go on to win two more uh, and after, after I knew him. But my gosh, just to sort of watch 
that athlete grow and mature through his life and to see what he did over time with different, with different partners and how he adjusted. People think of rowing as this sport where you just learn that you learn one technique and you repeat it over and over again. Look how young Redgrave was when he won his first gold medal in 84 and how old he was in, in uh, 2000 when he won his final one. And think about how much transition, just it wasn't the sport that changed, it was the human being that changed. Redgrave, my gosh, master. And you, you mentioned that, and of course you won gold in 92, and then you competed again 12 years later in 2004 yeah. in Athens. What changes had you made in those 12 years? Yes, I, so, and sort of in using that Redgrave example and understanding I didn't win a gold medal in 2004. Mm. Uh, my partner and I were, were eighth at that Olympic games. Um, and so back in the leading up to the 92 Olympics, we put the proverbial eggs all in one basket. We did not want to get to the finish line and ask ourselves, well, maybe if I hadn't taken that extra shift at work or taken that extra class in school, we took all those things off the table. Uh, we moved from the Washington, D.C. area and this really wonderful training culture in D.C. down to rural western North Carolina in, the, in Appalachia, far from a big city. And what was great about living there and putting the eggs all in one basket there, Richard, was that the cost of living was very low. So it didn't, you know, we were able to put more time and resources into paddling our, our canoe and working together as a team. And we didn't, you know, we operated from the standpoint, we don't want to get to the finish line at the Olympic trials or the Olympic games and say, is there more we could have done mm -hmm. now, 12 years later, when I'm on the start line of the 2004 Olympic games, now uh, I'm married. Uh, our daughter is almost three years old. Uh, I have a mortgage. It was like, I have more of a regular life. Like there's more balance. And that wasn't something that I ran from. I mean, that was just sort of the new, I had other people that I was really excited about sharing that experience with. Do I think there's more that we could have done in our training? I was paddling with a different canoe partner uh, in 2004 than I was in 1992. Um, so that was a new challenge, but do I think there's more we could have done? Yes. I think there's, there's definitely more we could have done. And I just love the fact though, that I was able to kind of share that experience with people in a very different way in a different phase of my life. And so to go to those Olympic games, uh, years later with that perspective, just helps me that much more. And often I, you know, when I'm coaching and when I'm speaking and when I'm training, because we didn't win, I almost have more that I can learn from, from the 2004 Olympics, uh, even than the 1992 Olympics. Uh, although I do realize people are, are really curious about like, what is that little thing that happened then in 1992 that was the difference between first and second or first and eighth or making the team and not making the team. Uh, so um, I just, as a lot of this, I do want people to say, I can, I can talk a lot about what I think those little differences are, but I, it's hard for me to talk about it without talking about learning from mistakes and setbacks along the way. 
Mm. And of course, there's always very different factors at each event, and we could go through all of them. And uh, unfortunately, I am going to ask you about <laughs> the lead up to '92 because it does interest me. And, Please, and, yeah. and you, you said you did go kind of almost back to basics. If you took yourself away from a big city and were able to just focus, give us an idea of what a typical training day was like then. Yeah. So in fact, what could be interesting is I'd love to even compare a little bit between what my training days were like in Washington, D.C. And then when we moved to Western North Carolina, where we were kind of making up our own rules and reinventing ourselves in a new environment. So yeah, that would be great. Back in the, yeah. So when I was on the Potomac River, part of the reason that the Potomac River in Washington became this um, mega center for whitewater canoeing was that it, if you think about where the best natural whitewater rivers are, whether the United Kingdom or the United States, they tend to be in rural areas where there's a little more elevation. And if there's more elevation, you tend to be further away from the big cities. So this was before they were building all these man-made whitewater channels like you have at Lee Valley now in, in London. I mean, there's a world-class whitewater center in downtown London. or not in downtown, but in London now. And so it was very different. So back then in the 1980s, um, athletes had to uh, go to work. They had to go to school. So our workout schedule was that we would do our morning workout at 6.30 in the morning so people could get to work. And, and we were usually done by 7.45, 8 o'clock. People would do their work, come back out around anywhere from 4.30 till, you know, 5.30 and stay on the water till 6 or 7 and do the second workout. So it was really revolving around, um, you know, the busyness of a big city. When we went to Western North Carolina, it was really, it was a big change. We weren't, we weren't rushed to start that early in the day. I remember like we may set a start time for a morning workout at around, uh, uh, 10 in the morning, but we would show up at nine o'clock and just spend time together. And, you know, maybe we would do a little work on the course, just, you know, getting, you know, moving rocks around in the river before the water turned on or uh, moving the gates around or having a, a little cup of coffee. And it, so it was very relationship based. You know, we really had time to get to know each other and support each other as a group. Then we could really get out on the water. And again, we weren't limited by time because we didn't have to really be anywhere. Right. I mean, now we've really got all the time that we need and we could stay on the water later. Or if we really have a coach had an issue or a challenge to us, we could really take the time to break that challenge down. We weren't rushing anywhere. And then the same kind of thing in the afternoon. Um, you know, it was, I just feel like not being, feeling like you had to be somewhere else and having the time to build relationships with the other people in your group when you didn't have to be somewhere else really brought us together as a group and very quickly our 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 training scene in rural western north carolina uh started to really get some good results quickly and we were very motivated back then you know whitewater was just coming back onto the olympic program it had been off the olympic program for 20 years 1972 the first time coming back on in 1992 there was just this level of innovation and just kind of us creating our own rules um, as we went along. And that was very empowering. It wasn't that we were competing with the training group up in Washington. 
in fact, quite the opposite, but we found a much better uh, set of circumstances in in nature, at, a, far away from the distractions of a big city, um, all those complications of traffic and transportation and having to be somewhere. We just, I cannot tell you how good it felt to, you know, remove those elements out of our, uh, um, out of our training. And then the second thing that was very important about our, our, our new training scene in North Carolina is that we also had the time and flexibility to go do these sports specific training camps on the rivers where the biggest races were going to be. So, um, one of the things about whitewater canoeing, you cannot simulate the whitewater course anywhere else in the world. If you want to be good on that course, you've got to spend time canoeing on that course. My partner and I spent 100 days on in the in the 365 days prior to the Olympic race in Spain in 1992. About 100 of them were spent in that little village of 12,000 people, La Seo d'Urgell, two hours north of Barcelona, learning every square inch of that course that we could to the best of our ability. And so, putting in that time in in that uh, at that course was a was a big part of our mentality and just kind of the way we saw ourselves and just getting not just comfortable on the course, but getting comfortable in that village and meeting people and starting new friendships and, and just embracing the local culture. That was huge. That was a huge, huge piece for us. But all of these things came when we moved to Western North Carolina. Was anyone doing that at the village as well, Joe, or, or were you mainly the only ones there for that long a time? No, there were other people uh, doing doing that as well. Um, we just had, uh, we just, a- again, we were able to bring that same mindset of training that we used back in, in North Carolina uh, to to the race course and to the village in, in Spain. Um, and I think that the really big difference was probably not exactly what was happening on the water. But I just remember really enjoying what we were doing off the water and just kind of having that that mindset, that disposition to be grateful for this opportunity to be in this beautiful, picturesque village and these relationships. And uh, so now I, I got to tell you something, Richard, about like just to sh- give your, you know, the listeners a sense of what that experience meant to us, not the on the water part, but the off the water part, like what it means to when you can really wake up in the morning far thousands of miles from your home and just feel great about where you are. Um, two things, two quick things I'll tell you. Number one, when my wife and I had our, our daughter, she's 16 years old now, and she's an athlete in the sport of canoe song. We named her after that village in Spain where the Olympics was. It's called La Seo d'Urgell, and our daughter's name is Seo Jane. And that's what that experience meant to us. And secondly, uh, all these years later, 25 years later, you know how people uh, talk about the idea of, hey, it would be fun to live abroad for a few years or my wife and I have been talking about it for 20 years, living abroad somewhere, because the sport is so big in Europe, and we just met all these wonderful people. Right now, our family and I, we're working on our Spanish residency, and we plan to live in this village for about six months a year right now, starting oh, later this summer. And it is that is the impact 
that is the impact of not the on the water stuff, but all the other stuff that goes with it. And one of the things I guess I would ask people to sort of think about in their attempts, in their process of trying to do a little bit better, no matter what they're trying to do, there's our brain naturally wants to think about all the direct tactics to do better. I like to just focus on the conditions for doing better. I honestly think that one of the reasons that we did well uh, at the Olympics in 1992 was that more so than working the tactics of paddling the course well, uh, we just enjoyed the conditions to do well. The Just feeling good about the relationships, feeling good about being a part of this community, being um, you know, just the little routines each day. I remember on the really cold uh, spring days in March when we were just freezing and walking up from the course into this little town and walking into the, uh, into the cafe at the hotel Nice and, you know, Carmen who still works there 25 years later, (laughs) just seen us walk in, you know, freezing cold. And she just starts making coffee and an, and an egg sandwich for us because she knew. And I cannot tell you like what those conditions mean when you feel like you're a part, you feel good about how your feet are anchored to the ground in a place. Um, That makes a big difference in how you perform. It's not just the direct tactics. It's the indirect stuff, the conditions to succeed. It really makes, uh, makes all the difference. Well, I'm very excited for you going to Spain, Joe. It's interesting. I've been lucky enough to live six years in Doha. I lived a, year in Madrid, uh, four months in Paris, four months in the States. I've, I've had that experience. And the, the one thing I was going to ask you about is uh, during my time in Doha, it's very much what, what we would call in England um, a Marmite place. You either love it or you hate it. Marmite is, is the spread okay. we put on toast and people either love it or I know they hate Marmite. it. Oh, you know Marmite. <laughs> and yeah. uh, uh, Doha for many people was this... Um, love it or you hate it and I've always been this very positive personality and this kind of mindset of um, this has everything I need I'm going to make this work while other people would immediately go in and say oh they haven't got this or this is different to home and and I, I used to actually say that all right Doha might not be New York or London but I think these people have the mindset that they would be bored in New York or London or wherever have you always been such a positive person because that's what's coming across to me Joe I I I have in the sense that um you know a lot of people look at the sport of whitewater canoeing as this super cool sport it's a sport for life it's gravity there's excitement there's risk there's uncertainty and as cool as I think the sport is, I was always more attracted to the people that did the sport than the sport itself. It's always about the people. And I think once it's about the people and it's about relationships and it's about um, what you bring to make these relationships and these cultures better, that's where I think that comes from. So then you, you, then you go somewhere whether it's into a small, tiny town in the middle of Southeast, you know, in the, in the middle of Tennessee, uh, or you go to a big city that you really see it for its best. I, I'll give you a, in a great example of this. I, back in when London was bidding on the Olympic Games uh, uh, for 2012, this was 2005, New York City was also bidding on the same Olympic Games. And 
I was helping out the bid for the New York City group. And I remember for the longest time feeling like New York was this uh, very rude type city, you know, <laughs> the people there that, you know, they don't smile at you. They don't say hello. And I got to tell you, I, I remember walking down the street in my New York City uh, Olympic you know, 2012 rain, rain jacket. And, uh, when the international Olympic committee was visiting and I could not believe how like quickly New York felt like a small town to me. I mean, people were stopping me and saying, Oh, I hope this happens or, Hey, what can I do to help? And it was just, you just begin to sort of see when someone creates a vision and creates something that, uh, will ultimately bring human beings together in a positive way um you see the best side of it and then the next step after that is like gosh how do i help more people uh, recreate that in more places so i mean if it can be done in new york i mean it can be done in, in a lot of places and you don't just have to host an olympic games to make it happen uh, this happens in the smallest towns i mean we just have this desire to connect with people and so i think that if you uh, really focus on the quality of relationships and you really hold that passion for learning about other people and why they do things the way they do. Again, if you give yourself a reason to learn, you will give yourself a reason to live. And that is, um, I guess that's where that positivity comes from. And that's why it, it, it's real easy to make happen. And that's not to say that challenges don't come up. That's not to say bad things don't happen in a place, but Inherent, genuine, you know, in most of the cases, you know, the human condition is is to want to connect around uh, the spirit of positivity. Mm. Well, London did host those games, and it was that same scenario there, Joe. Of my experience there was how London can be a bit of a grumpy place, can be everyone ignoring each other. But those two weeks during the Olympic Games, everyone was speaking to each other. It felt like Disneyland. It was absolutely magical. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Best in the World Podcast with Richard Parr. More fantastic knowledge with Joe Jacoby in just a moment, but I want to tell you that this podcast is now part of the Sportachino Network, where we produce sports content for you on sportachino.com, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Periscope, you name it, we are there. We have live Facebook videos and podcasts and topical debate on our social media platforms. Everything you want to know about sports and sports and personal development, go to sportachino.com. If you get a chance to like the Facebook page and subscribe to us on YouTube and on iTunes, I would really appreciate it. All right, let's return to the conversation with the 1992 Canoe Slalom Olympic gold medalist, Joe Jacoby. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. With relationships, Joe, I, I want to move on to your your career um, as the CEO in charge of uh, kayaking and canoeing for the United States. And I, I want to talk about how easy it was then to have these relationships with people who are, are kind of working directly underneath you. How how does that sometimes work when, say, they're not following orders or, or not doing what you'd like them to do? So it was it was it was interesting that that particular position, and I should say that was the first and only time in my life that I've ever had a uh, kind of a conventional paycheck job, right? <laughs> um, yes, but these I think these Olympic sports have these cycles to them. And I think sometimes it, it's there are cycles when it really helps to have people who have some experience in the sport come in and, and lead the organization. And then I think there are cycles where it's outstanding to have people who have no experience to the sport, but they have strengths in other areas of building and growing and maybe television or sales or sponsorship or what have you. Um, so I think that the time that I came in, it was, it was good to have some sport experience. And I got to tell you, I didn't see that hierarchical nature. I didn't see how, and maybe to a detriment, I didn't really see how I was going to get these people working for me. It was really more how I was working for them. And especially the closer that the people were to the CEO position, um, I, I embraced that even more, like, cause those were the most direct reports that were, that were doing the real hard work and kind of getting the sport of canoeing out to the grassroots. I, you know, again, I kind of bring this up again, just think how hard it is just to get one person into a canoe and equally, it's not always so easy to take a, uh, uh, the, the properties of canoeing. I mean, it's not your, 
it's not the most, it's not the sport that when you're flipping around the TV channels that you come across on TV every day. So there were some challenges in, in marketing and growing and selling the sport. So to me, it was much more about how am I serving these people in, in front of us? But also, I, I also, these, sometimes these national governing bodies uh, in a sport, the size in a country, the size of the United States, where it is just the regions are so culturally different from each other. You cannot, it's very hard to have one systematic way of doing things. You know, what works for a guy developing a canoeing program in Minnesota is going to just by geography and weather is going to be very different than the guy who's doing that in San Diego, California. You know, one is doing it in summer temperatures year round and the other one is doing it, at summer temperatures three months a year so you're going to end up with a very you can't have one system for doing canoeing so i think figuring out who wanted to be a part of this movement and that idea of working with people who want to work with you and i know that can be a little bit harsh sometimes but this idea that we can work with everyone regardless of kind of their philosophy or their ideology it, it, it's very hard to do in the Olympic sport. And especially when you're getting so much pressure from the Olympic committees, be it Britain or the United States or anywhere else where the pressure is, they don't care as much about growing the sport. They care more about the medals you're going to win in this upcoming Olympic games, like win now, you know, win today, you know, what do you got, you know, what do you got for us today? What's, how are you going to help us, you know, in our medal hall or medal count? Uh, that was really what was important um, to to the uh, you know to these Olympic committees. So there's a I think reading it's a lot like being in the river again. You know you're you're reading these different forces. You know you have clubs that want grassroots development, and you have Olympic committees that are saying win now. And these are two very different kinds of forces. And just like when you're on a river the currents don't always flow in one direction. You know, they come in from the side and they uh, sometimes they bounce against rocks and you as the navigator have to be better at reading currents and really coming up with some uh, strategic decisions about how you're going to navigate the river. Once you make that decision, like that's, that's what we call your line through the rapids. Uh, that's what athletes are doing when they're paddling whitewater rapids is that they're creating um, a path through this uh, jumbly, non-predictable whitewater with opposing forces. And you, you've just got to choose your path and, and stick with it. And it's not going to make everybody happy, but that's where you really decide um, who's who do you want on your boat? Who do you want in there with you? You need people that are really trying to paddle in the same direction. With that pressure from above, Joe, would you somehow have to try and shield that pressure from your athletes at all? I think that they, I mean, look, I think that the athletes ultimately want to do their best. Uh, you know, I was, I've listened to some of the other athletes on the podcast, and I think that is a, a, an incredible commonality about the um, people who who have conversations with you. But I think how they go about that is um, um, it's a little bit different for everyone. And, you know, I'm a, I am a big believer that everyone needs their own um, rules. This is so much about shielding 
usually it was more about just being as transparent and honest with them as we could about, uh, you know, the resources that they'll have available, um, kind of what they're on the hook for. Um, what I was really looking for when I was talking to athletes, when I could really get a read for athletes, they were the one, the, the ones that were just the most self accountable and they just didn't really care what the obstacle was. They didn't care how much the money or the resources were available to them. They just wanted to, to know so they could plan and really just come up and, and make that transition from plan B to plan C to plan D without the drama and without um, getting upset and without blaming other people. Those are the ones that you just knew were, were, were going to be your best performers. And the moment someone said, well, you know, well, I, I really could do well if I just had X and Y or Z, that was when you sort of, in, you know, you knew that that athlete was probably not going to be your athlete that was going to uh, perform at the, at the highest level for you. And I just knew how to, I knew how to read that in people. Um, and, you know, no one ever wants to, you know, be, be told that they're, you know, that, um, especially when they, when they're in that mindset that, you know, if I just had this, uh, I would do better. They don't like to hear that, um, that, that maybe that idea of blaming or coming up with an excuse why, uh, isn't working for them. And those were, those were always the, the, the hardest conversations to have with people. But that's still what I look for today. And I think that if you go back and you listen to a lot of the messaging, that, that kind of the undertones of the conversations that happen on this podcast, I think that if you listen very closely for that accountability um, and the people that just were able to make that seamless transition and listen to how they work through change, that they just there was never much drama to it. They're just like, okay, that, that's, that's the new, that's the new path for today. And, and you go forward, you adjust and you start going and you sort of see it as an opportunity. This is why I had said in the beginning, so much of what we're doing, we're just, we're course correcting, you know, we're, we're correcting little mistakes as we move down the river. There's just a lot, you know, there's all these little things trying to knock our boat off course. And the better we get at reading the river, and anticipating those mistakes, while they're still small, they become much easier to fix. And if you get better at fixing mistakes than the other people, you're going to find yourself consistently performing at a better and better level. Mm, amazing, Joe. That, just so so good to hear hear all of that uh, incredible information. And yeah, we we have had some some great guests on there, which we should go back and, and listen to. And uh, I, I, one thing I want to talk about now is something which happened a little bit recently. And uh, my impression with you, Joe, is uh, it's with the positive side. There's 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 something about you with the positivity and. and the, the, the universe kind of works for you because you look at the right side of life. And that, that's just my impression because that's kind of how I kind of look towards life. And I think it's something similar when I had Veronica Campbell-Brown on from um, the Jamaican Sprinter, that, that kind of positive way of life. And it's the story of, of last summer, how your medal got <laughs> stolen, but then yep. it returned yep. to you. For those who don't know, maybe just explain that story to us, Joe. Right. So we were uh, in June of 2016. My wife and daughter and I were having 
uh, an early dinner in Atlanta. Our daughter was getting ready to fly out to uh, the Mountain West United States to spend about half the summer paddling rivers in Idaho and Colorado. And uh, while we were having dinner, and this was just off the campus of Georgia Tech where the Atlanta Olympic Village was. And I remember that night it was a beautiful evening, afternoon, late afternoon in Atlanta. We were, my wife, who was the Olympic team leader for whitewater canoeing uh, back in the 96 Olympics, she and I were telling our, our daughter about the 96 Olympic Games, which she wasn't even born by that point yet. And we were, while that was happening at this little restaurant, our car was being broken into in the parking lot and the thieves got away with my computer bag. It's the only thing they took out of the car inside the computer bag was my Olympic medal. And a lot of people say, well, what a knucklehead. Why does that guy have carrying around an Olympic medal and leaving it in the car? It goes with me most everywhere. I mean, I figured out very quickly 25 years ago when we won the Olympics that if I could take a big hammer and smash that medal into a million pieces, like there still wouldn't be enough pieces to go around to give to each person who helped us, who played a role in, in us winning that gold medal. So I just always sort of saw it as a bit of an obligation and a, a very proud obligation to get to share it with people. And I never, ever thought that people would remember the name Joe Jacoby, but if they were watching the Olympic Games and they saw a medal ceremony, they would turn, that person who saw my medal would turn to their their family, their friend, and say, yeah, I saw one of those one time. This canoeing guy uh, showed us a medal at a speech or at a parade or at a TV interview, what have you. And um, that's why the medal goes, because I want people to relate to that experience when they're watching the Olympics, that they actually touched and held a medal. And so that's how the medal was stolen. And uh, what happened after the medal was stolen was kind of incredible, this went in, in just a matter of um, the first two hours after my wife put up the, the initial post on Facebook. And they, we, at that point, we had a picture of the, the, of the, the car, the stolen car that thieves drove into the parking lot. Um, and you could see the license plates on the car. And not that that really necessarily did a lot, except it made people believe like they could help if they just hit the share button on Facebook. And the post went viral. And very quickly, the thieves, you know, who had stolen a lot of stuff from a lot of cars that night, uh, they started to, they figured out that they weren't expecting to get this Olympic medal. And um, it, they knew it was a kind of a quote unquote hot item. And they, they got rid of it. They threw it out the car window. And a couple of weeks later, this little girl in Atlanta, six years old, Chloe Smith, was going for a walk with her dad. And as her dad likes to say, Chloe is always picking up trash off the ground. <laughs> and says, "Stop picking up the trash!" And uh, she picked up the very top part of the piece of the metal. So the metal had like two layers to it. This was a very light, flimsy piece, but it's the piece that looks like an Olympic medal. And her dad said, "Chloe, put that down. You're always picking up trash." But dad, she said, "Chloe, put it down." And Chloe throws it like a frisbee. And it goes off into the woods. And when it was in midair, the dad saw it like sparkle, like in the sunlight. And he said, Chloe, go pick that up. And Chloe was, said, but dad, he said, and Chloe, go pick it up. <laughs> and she picks it up and he hands it to her and she hands it to him. And uh, 
he looks at it. He knew what it was. They within just a few minutes later, he takes it home. His wife, Chloe's mom, uh, emailed me and had found the top part of the medal. Now Chloe is my buddy. She's seven. We go kayaking together on the Chattahoochee River, and uh, yeah, it's just kind of an amazing story. And there was so much positivity that came out of this this negative experience. But um, and I think as much as anything, Richard, I would say. It, it really allowed me from a different perspective to see what the medal and our Olympic performance meant, meant to other people. Like we really, I heard from so many people because when the medal was gone, it was like almost like a death in the family, right? It was like, you, so you really hear what that experience kind of meant to people. And I think to see that, it just really reinvigorated me. Um, not that I wasn't already excited about doing what I do anyway, but it just reinvigorated me to keep sharing the experience. And then once I got it back, it's just like doubled down on the whole thing. And it's like, yeah, they, more people have to see it now. You know, this is really good. Incredible story. And, and, and I love that you're, you're inspiring Chloe right now. Um, everything that you do, Joe, is, is about sharing and it's about giving back. Now, when you're in that real kind of, in the zone of training to become an Olympic yes. champion. How difficult is it to be that person? Do you need to be more single-minded? I thought for years, I used to tell people, I still tell people, I think that this was the most selfish endeavor I, I ever undertook. But I think I look back on it now. This is kind of one of the experiments that I'm running in my life right now. So when I was, 12 years old, I started to keep a training log. So I would just, I would do my workout and then I would write down a little bit about the workout afterwards and uh, mostly pretty objective information and uh, sometimes a little subjective, how I felt, how the workout went. And I ended up doing this. I ended up logging every workout I did from age 12 to age 22. After the day we won the Olympics, I don't remember much about after we crossed the finish line, but I can tell you this. I remember walking into my room in the Olympic Village, opening the, the, sitting down, throwing my stuff on the floor, sitting down on the bed, opening the drawer, and writing a journal entry into my training log after we won the Olympics. So it was kind of this mission accomplished type you know, entry. And so um, now I you know, I, I'd mentioned I did this, you know, I, I did this big deep dive into kind of what, what worked when I was doing really well, things that didn't work for me when I wasn't doing as well. I ended up later in my life bringing the idea of a training log in the form of journaling back into my life. I started a couple of years ago. I have some questions I ask myself every morning and I write them down, pencil and paper. I do it about five minutes in the morning and five minutes in the evening. And now, so to answer your question, um, my experiment that I'm running, I know that training and wanting to be the best in the world is a, is a selfish endeavor. The little dent in the world that I'm trying to make, and when I encourage, when I'm mentoring athletes, and I hear from athletes in Great Britain, from Spain, not just Americans, and I encourage them to keep a training log. And, almost, and the one thing, the one question I want each athlete asked themselves today that I did not ask myself back then, but I believe will be really helpful. The last thing question is, how did I serve my sport today? And I want athletes to do that every day 
that they train. Every day they fill out their, their training log. It'll just take a minute. The reason I want them to do that question is because I want them to think really hard about what it means to leave that question blank. What will it mean to fall asleep? Believing you actually didn't serve your sport in a more holistic, contributive way. And if you can actually come up with something to put into that part of your training log every day, uh, your disposition, your headspace will change over time. You will find gratitude in what you're doing in even the most challenging days and the most challenging times. But it is a practice. You don't just I don't just say this and, and it sounds good and you feel good and it works. It is a practice. It's not knowing, it's doing. So that's the question I'm, I'm challenging all elite athletes and developing athletes to do. How did I serve my sport today? And I think if you cannot leave that question blank every day uh, and you stay in your sport for a few months, a few years, 10 years, 15 years, and you can even keep doing it in your life after sport like I do today, I just now... The question for me is not how do I serve my sport today, but, you know, who did I serve today? Again, making sure that I serve somebody. Um, that is one of these little dents in the world that I'm trying to make, Richard. That's one of the experiments that I'm running, and I'm trying to encourage more athletes to ask themselves that question. Are there any of the other questions you, you have at the moment that you can share with us, Joe? Yes, I'd love to. So in the, here are the questions that I, I ask myself in the morning. Um, uh, what's my outlook for the day? And that question is usually um, a few kind of overarching w words to kind of set the theme, the, you know, the intention, you know, for my day. Um, then I have a question, what's the relationship focus for my day? This is just a way for me to, to be, to show a little more intention to the people I plan to interact with during the day. So, for example, this morning I wrote your name in there, knowing that we were going to talk and then I, I had never met you before, but it just gave me that moment to tune into this idea. Who's this Richard Parr? You know, and just by getting to spend a little bit of time thinking about that, as I wrote your name down, you know, was helpful. And I do this every day. And then the third question in the morning is, um, for what am I grateful? So that just allows me to kind of develop that gratitude practice. And then in the evening, uh, just what went well, what could have gone better? Um, then what's a reinforcing choice I made. And so a reinforcing choice is just something I chose to do that aligns with that bigger view of the world that, you know, that I, that just matches uh, that, my core values, my core views, and uh, just what's one thing I did today that does that? And then the last question is, who did I serve today? And I just wanted that one in there because you don't want it to be blank before you, before you go to sleep at night. And I've been doing those questions. There's room there to do more sort of free journal writing if you want to do that. But even um, if uh, you just answer those, those few questions, you check that box, and the reason I encourage anyone to keep a journal, whether you are right now in the gym or you're riding a bus to work right now or you're a young elite athlete that, that's training, I think if you believe that you have something, even a better performance to move to than where you are today, if you keep a journal or a training log like this every day, 
the process of writing with pencil and paper will not only be sort of soothing and kind of help you just sort of work through a, a mindset and, and a perspective on things, but after years, you're giving yourself the playbook that you're going to use for the rest of your life. And, you know, that's what doing this for me is that it was able, allowed me to reconnect with a very, in a very deep way, not just with what I did, but how I did it and why I did it when, um, you know, when we performed well at the Olympic games and, um, and work those through a process of how I can use them in a very different way today and teach others to use it in a very different way today. Well, I think that is an amazing bit of information there, Joe. And I think that is the perfect way to, to wrap up this conversation because you have written your list. You do have people to serve. I have taken double the amount of time we were going to have, but it's just been so fascinating. And I, I would have a lot more questions, but I, I think we've, we've really appreciated everything you've told us today, Joe. Thank you so much. Before you go, could you tell us how we can find more about you online and also your social media handle as well? So we can continue to get your fantastic knowledge please uh thank you so by the way uh thank you richard this has been great i would welcome a part two anytime just because i like talking to you so let me know if there's Definitely. ever an opportunity to come back on and um i also for two and a half years i've been writing a newsletter every sunday morning called sunday morning joe and it's about improving performance uh, overcoming challenge and aligning with purpose. It's a free newsletter that I do. Um, I love writing it. I, I put a lot of time into it. These aren't just little posts I, I whip out. Um, they, I really enjoy doing it. And it's a free, if you go to joejacobi.com, J-O-E-J-A-C-O-B-I.com, you can sign up for Sunday Morning Joe. And then also if um, all the coaching and um, training kind of work I do, you can find that at joejacoby.com or you can just go straight to fivewithjoe.com. You can number five or spell it out. It takes you to the same place, fivewithjoe.com. And I'm on Twitter at, at Joe Jacoby. And uh, so if people have questions there, uh, I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, let me know. Let me know like uh, like what – you thought of the podcast if you have questions um i'm very interactive i'm i am not so big and spread out that um i, I don't have a virtual assistant i read all my own messages <laughs> and email and it's great and so i'd love to hear from people and uh and most of all I, let's i, I want to come hang out with you over where you are so it's, uh we'll have to figure out a way you'll have to maybe create the live uh, best in the world conference or something and bring some of us together and uh, have some fun over in the United Kingdom. Yeah, I'd love to do that. I think that's definitely something that, that we've got kind of up our sleeves of what we'd like to, to do taking this podcast forward. And, and of course, we'd love to have you there. And, and when you do move to Spain, Joe, I'll, I'll definitely pop over and, and come and say hello for sure. Yes, yes, that would be, it is so easy. And we, and we will come up to the United Kingdom. It's so close and affordable and Hey, thank you so much. I just had a great time today. Uh, let's do this again. Definitely. I would love to do that, Joe. Thank you so much for being on the program today. And thank you for being the best in the world. Thank you, Richard. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr.
think you'll all agree we learned a lot from Joe on this week's podcast. He wasn't the first canoe slalomist we've had on the program before. Etienne Stotz has been our guest, as well as David Florence, the former world champion in that event. They're both on Best in the World. Go and listen back to them on the Acast platform or on iTunes. And while you're at iTunes, please give us a rating and review and give us a subscribe. Go and click that subscribe button would love to make sure that every week you get some fantastic knowledge from Olympic and world champions. All right, I will be back with you next week with another amazing guest. But until then, I hope you have a wonderful week. Goodbye. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr.